0: I'm glad to hear two of you are doing well. (laughs) You are a guest with us this morning. My name's Rob, and uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, I would love uh, to meet you today. And so I would just love to catch you in the lobby and uh, just meet you and your family. Uh, One of the things we ask everybody to do here on a regular basis is that Connect card that's in the seat back in front of you. Just filling that out sometime during the service really helps us. Um, And just to to make you aware, our elders meet uh, Saturday mornings for an hour and one Monday evening uh, a month to pray over all the prayer requests that you put on those cards. And so we just met yesterday morning, uh, elders and deacons here at the church, and we sat together and prayed over all the the names on the list. And so we want to invite you uh, to fill that out, ask any questions about the church, and after... Uh, We're done. Toward the end of the service, there's going to be a tray that's passed, an offering tray, and you can just put the card in that tray and it'll get to us. Um, Hey, One thing I want to make you aware of, we're going to do a lot more announcements toward the end of the service, but one of the things that's coming up is uh, what we call Holy Week. And it starts with what is uh, traditionally known as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And we're going to be doing a lot more uh, around here than we typically do that week. And so the evening uh, of our Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday services, that night, uh, we're going to be inviting a professor from Johnson University or Johnson Bible College. He's coming in, and he's going to be, um, he puts on kind of a concert called Easter Songs and Stories, and so we're going to be inviting him in, and he's going to come and do that for us that evening. Now, two things about that evening to keep in mind. One, it requires tickets. They're free, but we just got to know how many people are coming, Um, and two, there's no child care that evening uh, for that. Now, we have other events that week that do offer child care, so keep that in mind as well, but here's my invite. There's a card Um, that has Holy Week on it and tells you everything that's going to be going on that week in the life of our church, I want to ask you to put that on your refrigerator or somewhere where you're going to see it and join us in beginning to pray for that week now and not wait. And so if you would, join us in praying for anyone that's going to be coming to New Hope, anybody that's volunteering in the multiple capacities. Uh, that the message is clear uh, for safe travels for people that are coming in. Would you just join us in beginning to pray for that? But as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, I want to pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for meeting us in this place and reminding us uh, of your presence, God. Thank you that you give us access to your word, uh, that we can hear from you when we open your word. And so my prayer, God, is that you would keep in the front of our mind and on our hearts what you want us to hear today. And if there's anything you want us to forget, just wipe it from our minds. We believe you can do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In July of uh, 1961, one of the most famous football speeches ever given was delivered to the Green Bay Packers by their famous coach, Vince Lombardi, thank you. (laughs) Vince Lombardi, I was just quizzing you. One person knew it. We're here together. All right, so Vince Lombardi delivered one of the most famous speeches to his team. And what I find fascinating is not only the speech, many of you may have read this or uh, have heard about this speech. What I find fascinating about the speech is the background. Eight months prior to delivering this speech to his team, the Green Bay Packers were in the championship game. Now, this is before the Super Bowl came about, so this is just a championship game in December of 1960. And during the course of that game, it kind of came down to the wire. And with 10 seconds left, all they had to do was uh, cover 10 more yards to score a touchdown and win the game. And they could not do it. So eight months later, at the beginning of training camp for the 1961 season, Lombardi gets 38 of the best football players in the world, the Green Bay Packers. And he lines them up. And he has them all take a knee. And he begins to deliver this speech. And he goes and he pulls out one of these. And he says, gentlemen, this is a football. (laughs) And then he proceeds not just to have an opening line that was extremely basic, but he begins to go through all of the details about the game of football. Here are the rules for football. Here's how football is played. Here's how you conduct yourself. Here's how you run a play. Here's how you throw a ball. Here's how you catch a ball. All basics, all fundamentals, to the point where uh, one of their, what we would call Pro Bowl, their all-star receivers, Max McGee, interrupts him and says, Coach, hold on, slow down, slow down, you're going too fast. (laughs) In an attempt to be sarcastic, but really somewhat offended that you'd have to cover the basics. Well, Lombardi just smiled and continued to give his speech on the fundamental basics of the game of football. Well, uh, you know what he was doing. He was trying to remind a group of players that were more well-informed and talented than anyone else on the planet, the 38, 38 of the best football players who knew the game better than anybody else in the world, he's trying to remind them in that moment that you can never fall too far from the basics, that you have to remember to always keep the first things first. Well, the 1961 season ended with the Green Bay Packers going back to the championship game only this time. Instead of losing, they beat the, the Giants, 37 to nothing. 37 to nothing. Behind a coach who continually reminded his team to not fall too far from the basics, to keep the first things first. Like, what does this have to do with Jesus, Rob? <laughs> we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, and we're coming uh, up to an encounter that Jesus is going to have in chapter six today that is going to call us to pay attention. Like, hey, pay attention. Because you have to remember the basics. You have to remember to see Jesus the way he was intending us to see him. Something that's a lot easier said than done. So in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is going to be coming to his hometown, a town where everybody knew who he was. They'd watched him grow up. They'd interacted with him and his siblings. They knew that he was a carpenter in town, the son of another carpenter. He's a very good carpenter. As a matter of fact, there is some history that supports the idea that Jesus... In his carpentry work, uh, many of the pieces of furniture that he created in his carpentry shop were used up to 100 years after the resurrection. It's pretty phenomenal. So they knew this carpenter. They knew him well. But they also remember that one day where Jesus came into the synagogue and he opened the scroll, and instead of simply reading it, he sat down marking, hey, whoa, 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 you're claiming now to be a rabbi, that things are different. And from that moment on, everything with this kid we thought we knew changed. So Jesus is going to enter into his hometown and have an interaction with people very familiar with him. And Mark's going to tell us about it beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Now, Jesus has just got done raising Jairus' daughter. You remember David so beautifully taught us that last week, that Jesus had just performed this incredible miracle. Now, coming, uh, after doing that, he's going to be coming into his hometown. In Mark chapter 6, verse 1, he says this. He went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Now, that word astonished, literally translated, would mean utterly amazed. He is utterly, they are utterly amazed by Jesus' teaching. Now, Mark has made a very strong case through his whole gospel If you pick up on this, uh, time and time again, that whenever Jesus spoke or whenever Jesus taught, man, the crowd, anyone that could hear him was blown away. Like, this guy is incredible. I just want to keep listening to him. They were completely like, wow, this is unlike any other teaching that we've heard. And the same is true here. But they begin to question, wait a second. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? Like, where did he get this wisdom? Look around. No one else has this kind of wisdom. How were such mighty works done by his hands? They would have seen and heard about some of these miracles. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And after dwelling on these questions, they took offense at him. So this is the second time Jesus has come to his hometown. The first time is recorded in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus comes to his hometown and begins to teach and they're against, astonished by his teaching. They're blown away. They're like locked in listening to him teach. But then they don't like what he says. They get offended by him then too. And the, there's a group of them that plot to kill him and they try to kill him. Well, he gets away from that and this time he shows back up to town with 12 of his buddies. Not for that. <laughs> <laughs> but he shows up with 12 friends and these friends had to be a little bit perplexed. See, the disciples had been traveling with him for a little bit. They picked up on some things about him, but now he's going to his hometown and They're a little thrown off, I think, by Nazareth. Wait a second, Nazareth isn't even on a map. I mean, this is a small town, small town. Less than 200 people would have been living in Nazareth at this time. We know almost nothing about this town except that Jesus is from there. I mean, this is an easy to forget town. One of those towns that you could just go right through and not realize it. You just drove through it. Very, very small town. As a matter of fact, if you remember in John chapter 1, Nathaniel, when told where the Messiah was coming from, really was perplexed. And he said, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How could the Messiah of the world come from a town like Nazareth? But now Jesus, here he is. They've returned there. And he begins to teach. And after they're hearing his teaching, you've got to pick up on some things here. One, they've been astonished by his teaching, but it didn't seem to be enough. And they're blown away by what they'd heard about all these miracles. Jairus' daughter, and he stood on the boat and commanded the, the storm to stop. And it listened to him. They're blown away by what they've heard about him. But that didn't seem to be enough either. And they begin to really ask questions like, how in the world? Okay, like to a degree, this is really cool. But at the, at the end of the day, this is Jesus. We know Jesus. He grew up in this town. How did he get so wise? Where did this wisdom come from? How's he able to do all these incredible things? Is he not just the son of Mary over here? Isn't he the carpenter? Like, what, where is this coming from? The miracles weren't enough. The teaching wasn't enough. And so they dwell on these questions. And verse 3 tells us that as they dwell on these questions, they get to the place where they are actually offended by him. And the word used in verse 3 for offended is where we get our word scandalized or scandalous. They're actually scandalized by this. They are, they are deeply offended. The word could also be translated angry. The more they think about this, they're angry. Do you really think you're going to pull one over on us? You're going to insult us by saying our small town, is—that this easy to forget place is going to be where Jesus came from? They're completely offended by the notion, just the idea that the Messiah would come from their town because nothing good came from their town. Definitely not the carpenter. What in the world is going on here? Now, I want you to see something, and you'll see the connection to our opening illustration here. Jesus here is being rejected by the people who were certain that they knew him best. I mean, they were absolutely certain. If anyone knows Jesus, we know Jesus. Like he grew up around us, we know him, and we are certain that we know him, and yet they still rejected him. What about us? I mean, what about those of us that say, we're Christians, and I've been following Jesus, and I read my Bible, and I, I'm a follower of Christ, and, and you might say, you wouldn't say it this arrogantly, but you might say to yourself, like, us Christians, like, yeah, th- those following Jesus, we got the corner on the market when it comes to knowing Jesus, we really know him, but the question this text is begging to ask is, have you missed him? And all of your certainty that you knew him, have you missed him? You see, I'm convinced that until we come to understand the offensiveness of Jesus, that we're gonna miss what it means to fully follow him. Let me begin to explain what I mean here. J.P. Myers says it this way He says, What is beyond dispute that in the ministry of two or three years, Jesus of Nazareth attracted and infuriated his contemporaries. He mesmerized and alienated the ancient world. He unleashed a movement that has done the same ever since and thus changed the course of human history forever. What he's saying is that Jesus, everyone that Jesus attracted, he eventually offended. Everyone that was drawn to him eventually in something that he said or something that he called them to, something that he wanted them to repent of, at some point along the way, the the very Jesus they were attracted to is the very one that offended them. And Mark really lays this out for us. If you look at Mark chapter 3, In the the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3, he tells us that the civic and religious leaders from Jerusalem take deep offense at Jesus. So these elites. Now, these are the people that would be kind of like uh, influencers, okay? They're like people that, man, everybody wants to hear what they have to say. These leaders, these influencers, they are offended by Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. In chapter 3, he tells us that the Herodians and the Pharisees, they also not only were offended by him, but they plotted to kill him in Mark chapter 3, which is fascinating when you think about it in our day and age. That would be like saying the left wing and the right wing hate Jesus. They say, hey, I don't agree with you on anything. And I don't agree with you on anything. And I don't like you. Yeah, well, I don't like you. Just thing politics, okay, in our day and age. Everything, boom, boom, and we don't like each other. But we can agree on one thing. Jesus has to go. Like, I might disagree with you on everything, but the one thing we can't agree on is Jesus. We got to get rid of him. So you've got the elites, you've got the influencers, you've got the religious the powerhouse all deciding we might not like each other and we might not agree with one another. But the one thing we do agree on is that we don't like Jesus and we have got to get rid of him. And now in Mark chapter 6, you come to Jesus' hometown. It's not the big city where all the religious leaders are. It's not the influencers. These are the, uh, this is the small town. These are the humble, hardworking, blue-collar people, the people that are easy to forget. They're, they're easy to not keep on the forefront of your mind. Influencers is the exact opposite of what you would call this group of people. Their town not even on a map. And they decide, even though oppressed by those elite leaders and not agreeing with many things that their leadership was telling them, they could agree on this one thing. We agree. Jesus offends us. I don't know if you're keeping count, but that's everybody. Everybody was offended by Jesus. I mean, you've got big cities, small town offended. You've got the elites that are offended, the humble small town people that are offended. You've got the, the right wing and the left wing. Everybody is offended by Jesus. And I'm wondering, how in the world is that possible? These are people that don't agree on anything else. They hate each other. So why is it that they come together And all agree that they're deeply offended by Jesus, like sandpaper to their soul. They just want nothing to do with it. And I'm convinced that the answer is Jesus offends everybody. He just offends them in different ways. Everybody attracted to Jesus at some point gets offended by him. Tim Keller is a well-known preacher and author, um, and he illustrates this well. I've taken his illustration and adapted it to our context, but it goes something like this. Um, let's say in Indianapolis, or really in Western culture in general, you go down and you begin to speak to people about Jesus. And there's some interest, and they're willing to talk about it. As a matter of fact, a lot of our culture is open to the idea they kind of like certain things about Christianity. So you talk to some friends, and you realize, man, they love talking about grace and forgiveness and love. Those are all wonderful things. But then you begin to say, Yeah, that's true, but Jesus also said he's the only way to God, and you can't get to God any other way in the world except through him. Whoa. I'm all good with grace, and I'm all good with love, but don't tell me exclusivity. I'm not okay with Jesus being the only way. That offends me, that you would say that there's no other way. You see, but contrast that, not from a Western culture, but contrast that to an Eastern culture. And if you've had any... uh, any opportunity to be around Eastern culture is one of the things that you'll know about them, and there's a high population of this at IUPUI in Indianapolis. And through some conversation, I've I've experienced this too, they're not offended at all by the idea of there being just one God. They're okay with that. What begins to offend them is your conversation about grace, your conversation about forgiveness. You begin to say, hey, you have to forgive When you've been wronged, you have to forgive 70 times 7, according to Jesus. When someone hits you on your right cheek, you've got to turn your left cheek to them. Not only that, you don't just have to offer grace, but you receive grace. You don't have to earn your way to God. Jesus has done things for you that you couldn't do for yourself. And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. How can you live like that? That offends me. You see... Jesus never distinguished between, hey, I'm more offensive over here than I am over here, and this group of people likes me more than this group of people, or, man, uh, wealthy people, they sure do have a hard time with me more than poor people. He never distinguished anything about that. What you learn about this is every single place, every culture, every people group, at some point, they're offended by Jesus. And you think about it, if Jesus is from outside of this world and he comes into this world, then at some point there's something about this world that is a part of who you are that he is going to begin to offend. Every place, every mindset, every single culture at some point will be offended by Jesus. But my question is, what is it about Jesus that the people in his hometown were so offended by? What is it that they missed? What is it that was that sandpaper to their soul? What is it that when uh, Jesus, the carpenter, good guy, nice guy, but whoa, 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 now we've got a real problem. And I think a close reading of the text reveals that their biggest issue would have been the ordinary nature of Jesus' message. That this ordinary guy that they'd seen most of their life could be the Son of God, the Messiah for all of humanity. See, their idea was that the Messiah would come, and it wouldn't come from a carpentry shop. That the Messiah was going to come and he was going to rule in a very real powerful uh, display of majesty. That the Messiah was going to come and it would never be in this ordinary way. They, they never think that the Messiah is going to come from their small podunk town of Nazareth. There's no way. They were looking for something big, something exciting, something that was uh, energetic and made them feel good. Something that you couldn't miss no matter what. So when Jesus comes and the idea that the carpenter from your town <laughs> is actually the Messiah of the world. That's offensive to us. I think it's fascinating. Uh, One scholar, I can't say his name, but if you want it, you can come see me. But he wrote an article called The Scandal of Jesus. He explains it this way. He said this, ultimate salvation in all other religions is seen as somebody escaping the shackles of their humanity. The shackles of our individuality, the physical embodiment, getting away from the ordinary human life of eating and drinking and sleeping and working. Every other religion says salvation means that we'll someday be released and liberated from the ordinary humanness and we'll be delivered into some sort of an existential transcendent spiritual existence. But biblical salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for this world in any other religious system or any other philosophy of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. And the people in Jesus' hometown couldn't see it. They were struggling to see that Jesus doesn't just want us to pursue God's present in the extraordinary, but he wants to redeem the ordinary, everyday parts of our lives. This is what Jesus wants to be a part of. And look, can I be vulnerable with you this morning? I fear for the church. There's so much beauty and good that's going on, but I think sometimes we miss this because many of us say, when I come to church, I need to be wowed. It needs to be exciting. It's got to, music's got to hit me the certain way and the, the teacher's got to be the perfect person. And, and man, it's just got to be this experience to the point where many churches are calling the gathering of God's people experiences. We've got to experience it. We've got to experience it. And this text is telling us, no, Jesus wants to meet you in your ordinary everyday moments of life. But the people in his town, they couldn't see that. Let's look at verse 4. Jesus responds to him. And a prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. It's not that he was incapable when you read that. That's not what he's saying. Mark is not saying that Jesus was incapable of doing a mighty work there. It's, they didn't want him to. They got to the place where What offended them caused them to reject him. What they couldn't get their mind around, they did not want to be a part of, and so he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then verse 6, so telling, it says, and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went among the villages teaching. This is one of two places in the entire Bible where we're told that Jesus himself was amazed. Every other time... It's described that people were amazed or marveled at something. It's people that are marveling or amazed at Jesus. But this and one other time we're told Jesus himself was amazed. And I don't know about you. I want to know what amazed him. The first one is when this uh, Roman soldier comes and says, my son is sick and I lead a lot of people and I've, I know who you are. And so you don't even need to come. Just say the words and I believe that you'll be able to heal him. You don't even need to show up. And he says, man, I am. It says Jesus was marveled was in utter shock, amazed by the faith of this soldier. Then he's in his hometown, and now Jesus is completely amazed, blown away by their lack of faith. And so the very thing we learn that amazes Jesus is either the faith we have or the lack thereof. And he's completely amazed by their lack of faith. You see, their own discernment about the way they think life should be about what they wanted, prevented them from actually seeing Jesus. And now Jesus uses that moment of rejection as a really difficult teaching moment for his disciples. And he tells his disciples, like, hey, now I'm going to send you out two by two. This is verses 7 through 13. He says, I'm going to send you out two by two. And I want you to go into these surrounding towns. And I want you to not take anything with you because you need to rely on me. And here's the thing. You're going to be tempted to try to have success, but all I'm calling you to is faithfulness. Leave the success to me. When you show up, I want you to carry this offensive message of repentance, meaning my life is headed this way, but the good news that God has for you in Christ means that really some things need to change in your life. And that offensive message, you need to go town to town and tell people. And they might see some of the miraculous things that you're doing, and they're going to hear the teaching you're doing. And if you can find somebody who's willing to listen, you need to stay there as long as you can and disciple them. Because then when you leave, they'll disciple their friends, and it will spread naturally that way. But if... You come to a place and you begin to share the good news, the message of repentance with these people, and they want nothing to do with it, like what you just saw me experience in my hometown. And you are to go to the outside of that town, dust off your feet, and keep going. You Talk about an offensive message. Talk about something that's really difficult. and Some people, they're going to be offended by the message. Other people are going to be receptive to the message. And God has called Christians to be faithful in sharing the message consistently. Now, here's a side note that I I want to talk to you. Like, we just got done teaching this worldview class here on Wednesday evenings. And if you want to see what offends Christians, (laughs) just start teaching through some of the cultural issues we have from a biblical perspective, and you can begin to see a lot of discomfort in the room. It's hard. I get it. It's difficult. And I've got some family members. I come from a a family that, that doesn't know the Lord. And I've had some conversations with many of them about what it is about Jesus that offends them so much. And they, they can list off issue after issue after issue. And eventually I get to the point where I ask them this question, somewhat of a difficult question. I say, why should what you and your mindset has determined is offensive to you? Your troubles with Christianity trump every other one because not everybody's offended by what you're offended by. So why is it that what you're offended by trumps everything else? And eventually it has to come to a second question. The second question is this. Is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, risen from the dead for the salvation of the world? Did he raise from the dead? Now, if he did not raise from the dead, then you be offended. Move on. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, if he is the Son of God, risen from the dead, then you have to take him with everything that offends you about him. That if he did, in fact, raise from the dead, now he is the one who he says he is. He's the only one that has done this. If he has done that, now we have to take him even with the things that are difficult and hard for us. So some people will say, no, man, that part of Christianity, it just deeply offends me. I've been following Jesus, and now that I hear this teaching, I'm offended by it, and I don't like it. I'm going to push back against it. And the question really becomes, Is so because you're offended by that part of following Jesus, does that mean Jesus didn't raise from the dead? Meaning, now that you're offended by this portion of what Jesus has said, does that mean Jesus isn't isn't the Son of God, risen from the dead? No, that's not what it means. Well, then we have the difficult job of having to handle that. If he's risen from the dead, of course he's going to offend you in some way. Remember what he said about the entire world. He said, this world hates me. And there's the whole reason he came was to save you from the part of the world that has infiltrated your heart. And so as he begins to pry into that part that is a part of your heart, it will offend you. And it will be difficult. And it makes it very, very hard to preach. <laughs> but maybe you're thinking, like I'm thinking, okay, Rob, well, Jesus goes to Nazareth and he's dealing with people that don't, don't believe in God. Okay? And then he sends out his disciples two by two to these surrounding villages and towns. And when they get to this town with this message of repentance, they're dealing with people that don't believe in God, but I believe in God. I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, and so this message must be really about my evangelism, my ability to go and reach the lost, and I would say to you, yes and no. It is about that, but it's also a message not just for those who are far from God, but those of us that are close to God. See, this message of missing Jesus, even though you're really close to him, even though you think that you can see him with clarity, the idea that we might still miss him is a real issue for Christians and non-Christians alike. Now, I'm going to illustrate it for you using the Bible. Any preacher uh, worth his salt will tell you uh, that uh, the best way to illustrate Scripture is Scripture. It's the best way to illustrate it. So let me tell you why I think this is also a problem for Christians. In the book of Revelation, if you have a Bible, you can turn there, Revelation chapter 2. The apostle John has been sent to this island called Patmos, and he's been exiled there. Well, on this island, Jesus gives him a vision, a message to then give to the church. And so he records this message. This is the book of Revelation. He records the message that he has been given by God, and then he's going to send it to the churches that are in a region called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And the first town from Patmos that would have received the message is the port city, Ephesus. And it's in the message to the church at Ephesus, the message that Jesus has for them, that we learn ourselves here today in this culture in this age why this can become such an issue For us. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Now, Pause there. You get a message from Jesus like this, you're doing all right. The church is doing well. Like, he's, good job, guys. You're doing really well. He says, when it comes to enduring difficulty, you guys are so patient, and you represent me so well. When it comes to teaching, you have solid doctrine. You stand up for solid doctrine. You care about theology. You're just, you're doing so good in that realm. And when it comes to the way that you're living, man, you are behaving perfectly. You're doing all the right things when it comes to this church. There's very little, if any, hypocrisy. You guys are really following through on what you're doing. He's saying, really, two things, church. You're doing such a good job. You are believing the right things and you're behaving the right way. Now, if you were to leave this town and be moved for work or go somewhere else, you're going to be looking for a church to be a part of. You're going to look for these two things. I mean, we naturally would. I would. I want to be a part of a church. I'm going to say, what do they believe? Are they solid on their doctrine? Is the theology right, man? I want to know. I'm like, man, this church is great. And then are they behaving well? Are they actually living out all these different things? How are they behaving? This is so good. And I would want to be a part of a church like that. That's the kind of church where you'd go in and the worship would just be, oh, yes, this is so good. And the teacher would be like, this is incredible, man. And you'd want to share it with everybody. And you'd tweet it and retweet it. And everything would be just incredible. That's the kind of church he's describing in Ephesus. And then Jesus utters the six scariest words in the entire Bible. He says, but I have this against you. And it's as if Jesus is saying, ladies and gentlemen, this is a football. You have abandoned. Notice he doesn't say lost. He says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have been so wrapped up in making sure you defend the right beliefs and so wrapped up in your behavior that you have missed me. Saying you have lost the deep love that you had for me at first. You have been inches from me and miles away from me at the same time. That your church looks so good and you're believing all the right things and you're behaving all the right ways, but friends, you have missed the basic that God came into this world in the form of a man to save you from what you could not save yourself from so he could have a dynamic, living, life-giving relationship with you. He wants to know you. And I fear that if all we do is believe the right things, behave the right way, then he'll say to us, but I never knew you. In the first book he ever wrote, Max Lucato, my father-in-law pointed me to this this past week uses the illustration of the crucifixion of Jesus. And he says, at the base of the cross, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, you had these soldiers. And the Bible tells us they're casting lots. They're literally gambling at the foot of the cross. And Lucato makes this incredible observation, and he says this. He says, they were inches from the cross, from the crucified Savior, inches from him, and yet miles, miles away from him spiritually. Look, friends, they missed him in Nazareth. And they missed him in Ephesus. What about here? What about in your home? What about in your marriage? Let's pray. Father, thank you for difficult reminders. For many of us, it's just easy to get caught up in what we're doing and forget to stay connected to you. And so we haven't been in your word and we haven't been praying and confessing our sin and walking in grace and stirring the things in our lives that remind us of how good you are and starving the things out of our lives that rob us of our affection for you. God, you are good. Even when life is not good to us, you are good. And so my prayer is, as we prepare our hearts for communion for this moment, where we can, like Jesus told the church in Ephesus, we can repent. And we can begin to allow our hearts to get back to the very things we did at first when we had this life-giving connection to you. May it be said of us, yes, we believe the right things and behave the right way, but we, we knew God. So we offer you these next few moments in the name of Jesus. Amen.